Oh, okay, so here's the deal. For those of you that do not know, my name is Wes. Stop, stop. Hey, seriously, we don't have time today, all right? We're going to be moving fast, so I need you guys to buckle up. Come on, take it, take the buckle, take it. I did not hear everybody go, shh. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, Birth certificate, Wesley Reed McElhinney. You could just call me Wes. Uh, My boss, the beautiful, the bald Kevin Barra, decided for some reason he was going to let me and my other fellow, fellow Matt on stage today. And you guys can figure out why, because I don't know. Um, But regardless, he did. And so we're going to be going through some stuff that has to do with Christmas, because in case you guys didn't know, Christmas is around the corner. Okay, I was curious to see how there was fun. Yeah, yeah, okay, cool. Um, so, in case you have been living under a rock uh, studying for finals, because I know we're all such great students, Christmas is coming around the corner, um, and it might be bringing some of us joy, and the reality is it might not be bringing everybody joy. We're not all walking back into perfect situations. But the Christmas story, Christmas and what it actually is about, actually holds a lot of joy if we'll just peel back some layers. So what I want to do today is I'm actually going to take one right out of the playbook of old Kevin because I don't want to be original today, and I'm going to do a corporate howdy. Um, But I'm going to do something a little bit differently because actually, I don't know if you guys are aware, howdy comes from howdy do, which comes from how do you do, which comes from how are you doing So when we say howdy, we're asking how we're doing and we're being responded with, well, how are you doing? Well, how are you doing? Well, how are you doing? It doesn't get anywhere. So instead of when I ask you how you're doing, I don't want you to ask me how I'm doing. I want you to tell me how you are doing. So if that's a good, I'm doing great. Uh, I'm tired. I didn't get coffee today. Uh, I need tacos and a nap after church. First of all, amen. Second of all, I want to hear that. And I don't want you to ask me how I'm doing. Can we do that? We need the energy high today because we're going to be moving fast. Can we do that? Howdy! Yes! Um, So I know I just asked you not to ask me how I was doing, but if you had asked me how I'm doing, I would say that I'm doing pretty good. Okay, there we go. We're good. We're moving. Um, It's because I get to be up here to talk to you guys today about something that I think is pretty interesting. Actually, Matt's going to get up here later... (laughs) And he's going to say that what he gets to talk about is interesting. And, and it is, but he's going to say it's more interesting. I'm just warning you guys now, don't believe his lies. What I get to talk to you about today is actually a little more interesting. And we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And we're going to talk about Christmas, a Christmas story, if you will. And a couple things may be going through your mind right now. Wait, okay, so maybe I know that the birth of Jesus is what's celebrated at Christmas. But he said 1 through 17, the birth of Jesus doesn't begin till verse 18. Wait a second. And then you might look to see what's in verses 1 through 17. And, and if you're anything like me, actually, I, I know every single person in this room, your heart is escalating with pure joy and ecstasy because the sermon you've always been waiting for is here today, a sermon about a genealogy. Yeah, yes. I expected stone cold silence. So we're, we're moving today. Let's go. Um, and the reality is, is I know we have all done deep, extensive studies on genealogies because they're exciting. Can I get an amen? amen. You are all liars, but we'll get to that later. Um, what's interesting, though, is a genealogy, while it may just be a list of names, actually has some interesting info if we'll peel back a layer that'll help us see a little bit more about why we should be joyful at Christmas, what Christmas might actually be about. So let's look at Matthew 1 through 17. In verse 1, we'll start right here in verse 1. 
the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we're going to stop it right there. You might be asking yourself, why is there a genealogy in this gospel? We know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell the story about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, why is there a genealogy? Well, I'm going to tell you. And it's actually pretty important. The book of Matthew is telling us about Jesus, but through a very specific lens. Matthew, the gospel of Matthew is written in an effort to prove to the Jews that God had made all these promises to them, and that Jesus was in the fulfillment of those promises. He had promised them a number of things, but namely, he promised them a coming king, and that king would also be a savior. If we look in 2 Samuel chapter 9-17, through 17, God is going to make a promise to the Israelites through David, who was the king at the time, and he says, hey, David, guess what? I'm going to paraphrase here. Trust me, this is what the Bible says. He says, hey, David... You're going to die one day, but guess what? I am making a promise to you right now that somebody in your bloodline, somebody in your genealogy, somebody in your family tree is going to raise up and establish a kingdom forever. And this is going to be a coming king that will bring about a kingdom of peace. And we find from other pieces of scripture that this king was also going to save them. He was going to be a promised savior. So the book of Matthew is trying to stake a claim that Jesus is not just some guy that came and was born in a major. No, Jesus has actually been promised a long time ago to David. And he was going to come and set up a kingdom forever to rule and to save his people, the Jews. We actually don't have to look very far to find that. We see that this does trace Jesus' lineage all the way to up to Abraham. But if we just look in verse 1, we see that the book of Matthew says, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That line, son of David, it's like he's playing a game of lawn darts. Does anybody know what lawn darts are? If you're over the age of 25, you definitely know what lawn darts are, and you know how fun they are. And for those of you that don't know, lawn darts are about 20 to 30 pound iron darts that are heavy enough that when you throw them any amount of distance in the air, they will impale themselves in your dirt lawn. So as you can see, there was a lot of fun to be had. So much fun was had that they are now illegal everywhere. You cannot own a set of lawn darts in the United States or you might go to jail. This is not fake. I I highly recommend looking up the Wikipedia page on lawn darts. It's a heck of a page turner. But what he's doing is he's taking his lawn dart. He's putting a stake in the ground is what he's doing. He's taking his lawn dart and he's going to launch it over here. The book of Matthew is going to put a stake in this ground right here. And this ground is saying Jesus is the promised king that we saw in 2 Samuel. He's staking a claim on that with those words, son of David. Now, I'm actually going to stop right there before we go any further. The reality is, is you, got, you know how you guys cheered a minute ago when I said genealogies? You guys are a bunch of liars. You want to know why? Because I think genealogies are boring. Oh, I didn't mean to put that slide up there. Well, it's up there anyways. I think that's, that genealogies are actually not that exciting because it's just a list of names. Let's be real. It says, I'm not even going to read it. That would be boring. It won't even be funny. It'll just be boring. But the reality is, is most of us look at that list of names and we might actually have already known that the genealogy tells us that Jesus is some fulfilled promise. So we'll go, okay, that's a neat bit of information. Let me look at it. Cool. Toss it away. Maybe put it in our pocket. Save it for a Christmas table dinner conversation topic. But we probably don't do much else with it. And then we skip on to the meat that starts in verse 18. But I actually think there's a lot of meat in these first 17 verses. And to find some interesting details that help us see who Jesus is actually and why he came, we're going to look at an interesting phenomenon that has occurred in these first 17 verses. 
And so what you guys might be aware of, you might not be aware of, if we're going to look in this genealogy, verses 2 through 17, we're going to find four women. Now, this is not unheard of, but it's not common because the genealogies were traced through the male. This was a, a, a Patron society, the, the lineage was passed down father to son, usually firstborn son, father to son, father to son. And the women were obviously important. We can't be born without them, but their names were almost never mentioned. But here in the chosen savior of the Jews, we find four women. So we might ask ourselves, why? Why are these women there? Well, we don't know every detail about why Matthew wanted to put those four women in there. But if we look at some similarities between who these women are, we can find some interesting things out about them. And the first question, let's just see who they are. In verses uh, 3, we see Tamar. And Tamar's story is found in Genesis chapter 38. Um, And in verses 5, we're going to find Rahab, who's found in, um, I believe, I don't even remember where she's found. Joshua. Got it. Um, And then Ruth is going to be found in the book of Ruth. And then the wife of Uriah, which is in verse 7, is Bathsheba. And you guys might be aware of all these women. You might only know who some of these women are. But the reality is they're in here. And what's crazy about these women, and it's actually painstakingly obvious if if somebody tells it to you and somebody told it to me, so I'm going to tell it to you now. And that's that they're all foreign. All four of these women are not just non-Jews. They're Canaanites. They're Moabites. They're Hittites. And these are not just non-Jews. They are enemies of the Jews. God's chosen people. These are enemies of God's chosen people. And they are clearly represented in the lineage of the Savior of the Jews. In a sermon um, on the same topic a number of years ago, a man named Raymond Bakke said this. He said that Jesus, in his own bloodline, connects all the scandalous racial groups in the Middle East. Jesus not only shed his blood for the world, he inherited that blood from the world. He was the mixed-race savior of the world. So we look at these women, and we see they're foreign and they're included. Well, we find out Jesus' bloodline is no longer of just the Jews. Jesus is not just of the Jews, he's of the whole world. And if we know that Jesus was sent to save his people, we find out his people are not just Jews, we can follow very easily after that, that Jesus was not sent into the world to save Israel. Jesus was sent to Israel to save the world. And I think it's actually really fascinating. We don't even have to look at the women to see this represented here in Matthew chapter 1. If we look at verse 1, we're going to go right back. What does it say after son of David? It says the son of Abraham. And yes, that might be looked at as a redundancy about his Jewish lineage, but I actually think that's lawn dart number two going into yard number two. And that lawn dart, that stake in the ground is actually claiming the promises that God made to Abraham. Because if son of David means God's promises to David, it makes sense that Abraham means God's promises to Abraham. Well, what did God promise Abraham? In Genesis chapter 12, we're going to find it. He says, I will make of you a great nation, Abraham. And those people, that great nation is the Jews. It is God's chosen people. But a little bit later, he doesn't stop there. He says, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He's making a statement to Abraham right there that Abraham has no idea about. He's telling us that it, wasn't always, it was always God's plan to include non-Jews in salvation. And Paul affirms this in Galatians 3, chapter, 8, or chapter 3, verse 8. He says, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify all the Gentiles, non-Jews, by faith, he preached the gospel before unto Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. 
It was always God's plan. The Jews were a means to bring about Jesus, who was actually for the whole world. And so this genealogy, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we're going to find that Jesus was sent into the world, not just to save the Jews, but also everybody else. And we actually don't even need verses 2 through 17. We need verses 1, and that's it. Chapter 1, verse 1, son of David, son of Abraham. He's the come, coming savior of the Jews, and he's also of the whole world. So that's a neat bit of information. We maybe took that neato bit of information and maybe added some more to it. Cool, foreign women, son of Abraham. That's really awesome. Why do I care? Why do you care? Why does this matter to us? Well, it matters to us because I think that the creator of our universe is shouting loudly at us with this information. He's shouting so clearly at us. And you know what he's telling us? He's telling us that he is of and for the world. Jesus is of the world and for the world. God is for the world and he's for you. He created the world and he created you and he's for you. He didn't just send you out on your way and leave you there to your own devices. He sent himself to get to you because he loves you. And I actually don't think that it stops there. I think we can keep going and say that he wants to use you. And I want to encourage you with this. If you don't know Jesus... I want to let you know that a genealogy, a genealogy alone is actually trying to tell you something profound about who he is and why he came, and that he came for you. And every single person in this room is included in that. This whole book, this whole book, the whole Bible is screaming this, and the whole book of Matthew is screaming this. Most of you guys are probably aware that Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, potentially the last thing Jesus said before he went into the heavens was, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So it's clear Jesus was wanting us to be about, and he was about more than just the Jews. And I probably don't need to tell you that. I probably don't need to tell you that the end of Matthew is screaming loudly at us that God has a heart for every single person he's created. But maybe what I do need to tell you is that it's not just being shouted loudly at the end of the book. It's being loudly shouted at the beginning from the first verse. Six words, son of David, son of Abraham, the creator of the universe is trying to talk to you. And he's trying to tell you that he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. And then he wants to use you. And you want to know how I know he wants to use you? Well, to establish a little bit more of, okay, how can I take this and bring it on into Christmas break? How can I actually apply this? I want us to look at another similarity between these four women. And that's that three of these four women, they found themselves in this holy genealogy, the genealogy of the Savior of the world. They found themselves in this genealogy through R-rated situations. Three of these four women found themselves through R, potentially X-rated situations. It wasn't because they were good. It wasn't because they were clean. It wasn't because they were perfect. It was quite the opposite, actually. God used them despite their situations. Bathsheba found herself at the mercy of her king, who then had his way with her, and then when he couldn't cover it up, he had her husband murdered. And then he said, you're my wife now. And that's how she got into the genealogy of Jesus. Rahab was a prostitute who, that's not a more noble profession back then than it is today. She was a prostitute who, not just being a prostitute, she also decided she was going to house foreign terrorists in her city of Jericho before they would come but days later and blow up the entire city. And that's how Rahab found herself in the genealogy of Jesus. And Tamar, 
Tamar found herself having to trick her own father-in-law into sleeping with her because her own father-in-law, Judah, decided he did not want to obey the commandments of God. And so what this is telling us actually quite loudly is God used these women despite their broken circumstances. He can use yours too. God is not afraid of your brokenness. He wasn't afraid of theirs. And he's not afraid of yours. And he wants to use it. But first he stepped into it. And that's what Jesus came. That's what Christmas is about. Jesus came to step into the brokenness directly. And the question we have to ask ourselves is why? Why did God step directly into our brokenness? Because we are broken. Our brokenness is not just external. It's very internal. We are broken and God wanted to heal us because he loves us. And so he stepped right in. And he didn't just want to heal us. He also wants a relationship with us. He healed us so that we could be established in our relationship with him. And if you don't know Jesus, I'm telling you, Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is trying to tell you something. God is trying to talk to you right now. And if you do know Jesus, I think he's still trying to talk to you. And I don't think that he just wants to sit you there with a relationship. God loves you too much to leave you where you are at, so he wants to change you from the inside out and then use you. God, in his loving, gracious, merciful kindness, has decided, I love these people and they're broken, so I'm going to step down right into it. And then he looks us in the eye and he says, I love you. And then he gently picks us up, dusts off our shoulders, straightens our bow tie, maybe fixes the hem of our skirt if we have one of those on. And then he looks right into our eyes and says, now I've healed you because I love you. And then in even more gracious, loving, merciful kindness, he turns us around, grabs us by the shoulders, and he says, I love you, I've healed you, now go. And then he gently pushes us right back into the broken, right back into the brokenness he just picked us out of, right back into the brokenness he himself stepped into. He wants to use you. He wants to get to you. He wants to change you from the inside out, and then he wants to take you, turn you around, and send you right back out so he can get to others. Will you let him? That's what Christmas is about. That's what Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20 is about. That's what Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 is about. That's what this whole book is about. And I don't want you guys to just sit here and say, that's cool, God wants to use me. I want to actually have you guys walk out of here today with something that you can actually do. So we're going to talk about five different ways you can take part in what we would call the Great Commission. What we, could, what we would call going and making disciples of all nations. So the first thing is mobilize. Hopefully that's what I'm doing now. There are people out there that God will use from time to time to share the word that is in this book and let the power of this book transform people's hearts that they might go. Sometimes all people need to do is learn about how God has a heart for them and for the people around them, and then they'll go step into it. That would be mobilizing. Another thing he might be asking of you is to go. Some of us in here, he might be asking to go on a mission trip this summer. He might be asking us to go to evangelism training on campus during the semester. Some of us in here, he has asked you to go on a vision trip this winter, and you are going on a vision trip this winter. The third thing would be send. God might be asking you, if he doesn't want you to go, he might be asking you to help other, another person go with your finances. He might be saying, hey, will you trust me with your money? 
so that I can step into the brokenness like I stepped into your brokenness. The number four, I think, is really fascinating because this may not be true everywhere else in the world, but it's definitely true here. We live in a very unique area where we don't actually have to go to the nations to be in and around all nations because we live near, if we don't go to, a school with so many international students, they're right here. And we get a chance to welcome them. God might be asking you to participate in the big giveaway. He might be asking you to have an international student over at your house for an American meal. And I know they all want that to happen. And the last one, I saved it for last, not just because it's a great transition into what we're doing next, but also because you might be able to say that these four points right here are something, I, God, maybe not that, I, I, here's why, blah, 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 and you could list maybe a logical explanation about why he's not calling you to these four specifically, but I guarantee you he is calling you to be praying. No person in this room who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is exempt from the call to be praying for the nations, to be praying that God would reach the lost, reach the broken like he's reached us. But I think we should also be praying that God would might maybe use me despite my broken situations because he's in the business of doing that. He's been doing it since the beginning of time. And our brokenness is not powerful enough to keep God from using it. And so in just a second, Kevin is going to get up here and lead us in a time of prayer for actually those people that are going on trips over this winter break. But I just want to leave you with this. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1, tells us the Christmas story. The genealogy of Jesus tells us everything we need to know about why Christmas exists, about why we have presents, about why we celebrate with these cool tree lights, about why we're here on this earth, let alone why we're celebrating a particular day in the calendar year. Jesus came to get to us and to use us. Will we let him? God, thank you for this holiday season. And thank you for these people in this room. Thank you for your son and thank you for what you have done to get to us. Thank you for the way that you lovingly step into our brokenness even though we are just that, so broken. And thank you that you lovingly would use our brokenness to help reach others that are broken. It is such a beautiful thing that you would allow imperfect people to be part of a perfect will and a perfect plan. God, you are good and we do not deserve the gift that is your son, but yet there it is if we would just take it. It's in your son's name that we pray through the power of your spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Wes. Wes, As Wes kind of transitioned us um, very, very well, we were actually going to pray because we have some folks that are going to be going um, to overseas missions over this winter break. In fact, we've got three locations that we're sending people to, and they're on the screen. It's East Asia, it's South Asia, and it's North Africa. And I know those are generic uh, areas of the world. You're like, that's a really big region. And there's a reason we're being generic is because some of those are closed countries that we're sending um, our folks to. And so in those particular instances, they definitely need our prayers. And so these these folks are going to be going over the Christmas break um, to these locations, spreading the gospel, reaching college students um, there in those locations. Uh, We have opportunities this summer as well, but we're going to welcome those people up right now. They're sitting right over here. So come on over and we will pray for these folks. Give them a hand as they walk up. All right. Awesome, awesome. Thank you guys so much for going for us, going to places that we cannot go over the break and bringing the gospel there. So let me pray for you guys. Lord, thank you so much for each one of these people.
Thank you so much for um, the support that they've raised, um, you blessing them financially so they can afford to go to these locations. We also pray, Lord, that you would make their work fruitful, that they would uh, start great conversations, start great gospel conversations with people that have never thought about the gospel before. Um, We also pray that we would see salvation. We would pray that they would see some students, some folks in these countries actually put their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time for the forgiveness of their sins. We'd actually see a change, actually see salvation. People go from death to life. And Lord, I pray that you would bless them as they travel. Their teams um, would work well together. Uh, They would be encouraged along the journey, and that they would come back with great stories that we get to celebrate here. Thank you so much for each one of them. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Y'all can have a seat. Thank you guys so much. Um, Awesome. For our next portion, I'm going to hand it over to Matthew Meyer. How's it going, guys? My name is Matthew Meyer. I'm a fellow here at Southwood. Do y'all actually believe that Wes's part of the talk was exciting? You talked about a genealogy. Come on, guys. What he did do, though, is made it exciting. Uh, I get to talk about the story itself uh, and try not to make it boring. So... Here we go. Uh, We will be picking up right where Wes left off in Matthew chapter 1, but then we're going to be quickly jumping over to Luke chapter 2. So if you want to follow along, we'll be in Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 2. But before we get there, uh, I want to read to you guys a list of really fun facts, okay? And while I do so, I want you to do two things for me. One, I want you to recall back to when you first learned those facts And then secondly, I want you to think about how how did those facts make you respond when you learned them. All right, here we go. Fact number one, I'm just going to read them off. In 350 BC, Aristotle discovered that the earth was round and not flat. In 1543, Copernicus discovered that the earth revolved around the sun and not the other way around. In 1704, it was discovered that we lived in a solar system with completely other planets that also revolved around the sun like Earth. And up until 1924, we thought that all the stars in the sky that we could see existed within our own galaxy. So in other words, we thought that the extent of the universe was confined to that of the Milky Way. But then in 1924, Eden Hubble uh, discovered an entirely other universe millions of light years away. And so it's attributed to him for the discovery of the vastness of space. Now, I don't know about you guys, but for me, uh, these were just uninteresting, insignificant facts that I just grew up knowing. And at best, I would think to myself, you know, like, space is pretty big, these facts are kind of neat, but usually I would think, I, I can't believe that there was people out there that used to think that the earth was flat, and and not round. And there's still people that believe that, but we're not going to get into that. Um, (laughs) Now, for each one of these astronomers, you best believe that they were completely knocked out of their seat when they made these discoveries, because each one of them was about to reshape their understanding of their existence in the world. For them, these discoveries were truly unimaginable. And what is sad is that many of these significant discoveries have faded into insignificant facts that exist within our human history. And the story of Jesus may have become the same set of fun facts that we just grew up knowing. 
And we are missing the significance found in the lines that tell his story. And so if we wish to be knocked out of our seat in the same way that these astronomers were, then we need to be able to walk out of this room seeing and understanding and believing that God has truly done the unimaginable through the person of Jesus. Because the truth is, the Christmas story has become more about lights and about presents and about Christmas trees and happy and cookies than it has been about God stepping into human history. <laughs> you see, the, the, the significant has become insignificant. And, and the remarkable has only become ordinary. And what was meant to inspire us has turned into Christmas cards that we just throw out when the tree comes down. I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but if you save your Christmas cards, then shoot, you're just better human beings than I am. <clears throat> and so, the first seemingly insignificant detail that we really need to pause to contemplate is that God came near, that he came to us. And so, picking up where Wes left off, in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 22, it reads, And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so who is this Emmanuel figure? Well, some of this will be familiar to you because of Wes's talk. Uh, but the first mention of Emmanuel is found in the writings of the prophet Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, and it's there that Israel, God's chosen people, the Jews, have built their framework for the expectations that they have about the coming promised Messiah that said that God would send. And by God sending this person, it was believed that God would be with them, hence the name Emmanuel. Something else in the writings about this Emmanuel figure is that he would become the king of kings to rule over all governments, vanquish evil by sword, and usher in an everlasting peace. And so this is who Israel was expecting for God to send. Now what they could never have imagined is that God would, um, what they could never have imagined is that it would be God himself who would enter into the flesh, and be the promised Messiah that uh, God would, be the promised Messiah that they were expecting. What they could never have imagined is that the eternal would limit himself to a baby. Guys, this is literally a, a deity who has entered into diapers. A deity in diapers who probably peed and pooped all over Mary. And can, can you imagine that? And if that wasn't enough, he was then placed into a manger, yeah, I, I don't know about you, but I didn't know this. A manger was a feeding trough. And not because of the archaeological discoveries we have in that region, we now understand it probably wasn't even one of those wooden elevated ones, uh, but rather a shallow pit in the ground that animals uh, walked over, ate out of, and slobbered on, and God himself was laying in it. Can you imagine? And so why is it significant that, that God came into the world in this way? I believe it's to show that he truly cares to enter into the muck and experience what we experience. Now, the second seemingly insignificant detail that should really blow us out of our seat and motivate us to respond is that once he came uh, into the world, he didn't just go to anyone. He came to the insignificant. And so let's keep reading. In Luke chapter 2, it reads, starting in verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her, for Mary, to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, 
and wrapped him in swaddling clothes. Remember that swaddling clothes. We'll come back to it. And then laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. And so I just want to pause right here and, and imagine for yourself, if you were writing this story, if you were writing about the coming Savior into the world, how would you write it? Here, it's talking about the Savior of the world coming into the world through a rejected teenage girl, Mary, who was first rejected by her family, and then by her friends, and then almost by her husband if it was not for a message sent to him by an angel. So let's keep reading. Verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. They said, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And so I want to pause again and point out that the announcement of the arrival of the King of Kings has come not to the political and the religious elite. No, it's come to shepherds in the field. And again, maybe because of our nativity scene here in the West, we have a very elevated view of who shepherds were. Shepherds were day laborers who would watch over animals during the day, sleep on the ground at night, who probably had dirt on their clothes, on their face, smelled no different than the sheep that they were watching. And the announcement of the arrival of the King of Kings comes to them. Guys, these are more like the rough and tough uh, American cowboys of the West than the normal witnesses of a royal birth. So let's keep reading. It gets better. Verse 12, this is in the middle of the angel's announcement to the shepherds. And the angel says, And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. There it is again. And living in a manger. Now, the neat thing about these shepherds is that they weren't just any shepherds. Because they were shepherds in the city of Bethlehem, they were what's considered the Levitical shepherds. And it's the Levitical shepherds that were in charge of raising the unblemished lamb for annual temple sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of, of the people. And the way they would do that is when, when the baby lamb was being born, they would take it immediately, swaddle it in, in strips of cloth, and, and to, to keep it blem- unblemished and pure until the day of sacrifice. So you can imagine that when they showed up to the doorstep of baby Jesus and saw him lying in a manger, surrounded by other animals, swaddled in clothes, they knew that somehow, some way, he would grow up and offer some kind of big uh, sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins of the people. So why is it significant that, God, that Jesus came into the world through a rejected teenage girl lying in a manger, and the shepherds were the first to know about it. I believe it's to show that he values us enough to come to even the insignificant. And so the third seemingly insignificant detail that should really knock us out of our seat and motivate us to respond this Christmas break is that after he came to the insignificant, he went a step further, and he decided he was going to give himself for us. So chapter 2, verse 11, again in the middle of the angel's announcement, it reads, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, who is the Messiah, who is Lord, the King, God. Guys, this is an identity claim of who uh, the person of Jesus was going to grow up to be. And as we know, as the story unfolds, he does become the savior of the world. But he doesn't do it by sword. 
He does it by becoming the suffering servant. Jesus literally rewrites what it means to truly be a good king and to be a, truly a human. You see, instead of, as a good king, instead of oppo- uh, uh, vanquishing those who oppose him by sword, he willingly sacrifices for the sake of their well-being, for their flourishment. And it's this upside-down mentality that willingly drove him to die on the cross in the place of those who deserved it, which is all of us. Guys, this is like our, our president going on a suicide mission instead of sending his own more qualified soldiers. And, and the, God of the God of the universe did this because he deeply and immensely loves us. That's why this is significant. And as C.S. Lewis puts it, Jesus came into the world not to take bad people and make them better, which, is, which I think is a mentality we can fall into so easily, but to take dead people, which is or was all of us, and give us life. And so... God has done the absolutely unimaginable through the person of Jesus because he came here, came near, in the flesh. And once he came, he didn't go to the political and religious elite, but he went to even the, the insignificant. And then he went a step further by giving himself for us. And so this should motivate us to respond this Christmas break in a number of ways. Over, over this break, that could be having a real conversation with your friends and family about the real story of Jesus. And you can do that because if, if you know that you are cared for, if you know that you are valued, and if you know that you're deeply loved, then you have nothing to lose, despite what flack you may receive, despite how it may change the, relationship, the nature of the relationships you have with your friends and family, because it's worth it. So I challenge you to do that over this break, but something that you can do right now is uh, the band is going to get up here and they're going to lead us through some worship in just a second, and Kevin's going to get up here and he's going to walk us through communion. During this time, for, for many of you, you guys can respond in worship, uh, in thanksgiving, and in prayer. You can thank him for the significance found in the details. You could even recommit yourself to Christ, not, not because you have to, but because it's just a good thing to do, and it serves as a powerful reminder for what God has already done in your life. Now, there may be others of you in this room who have the, have the opportunity right now for the very first time in your life, maybe, to say, God, I, I don't know everything. But I understand enough to know that you value me, that you care for me, and that you deeply love me. And so I want to know more of you. And if that's you, then, then during this time, respond in prayer to God and just tell him, God, I, I want to know more of you. And I, I trust that what you've done on my behalf is enough and that you offer me this free gift of life if I just accept it. And so I do. And if that is you this morning, then turn to the person next to you and tell them at some point because... You have just entered into this uh, family that you're never going to lose, that you're always going to be a part of, and more likely than not, that person sitting right next to you is a newfound brother and sister in Christ. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the significance found in the details uh, on Christmas. Father, I pray that we can tap into the real story, that we can be encouraged and motivated to have a real conversation with the people in our lives that you've placed in our lives. Uh, about you. I pray that as we enjoy opening gifts and and giving hugs and uh, enjoying the holidays that um, we we can be reminded of just who you are and what you've done. And let that motivate us, inspire us for, for the rest of our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen.